hello hello welcome back to i've never had an original thought this is the second episode it is hosted by me becky lee um and before we start i just wanted to say a massive a huge thank you to everyone that messaged me or listened to the episode or followed my podcast page um i really really appreciate it um and i appreciate you and just thank you so much and thank you for coming back for more i hope that i've delivered another good episode that you can enjoy on your sunday or throughout the week so whatever day you're listening on whether it's on the train or you're on a walk or whatever you're doing maybe you're in work yeah i'm so happy to be in your ears my guests this week episode are leo and casey lilac and they actually met while running an underground lgbtq community group at brigham young university one of the united states most notoriously homophobic schools after leaving byu and the mormon church to be together they eloped in 2017 they now live in happily in london where they create art which centers lgbtq disabled and religiously abused people you will see by the end of the episode that i'm very flawed by um leo and casey's words we have you know we talk about so much um and you know i'm not going to give it away i'm just going to let you enjoy the episode you can find casey and leo at network theater waterloo and if you want to audition for their sort of revival of much ado about nothing that you can do that um this monday and wednesday but more about that at the end of the episode so for now please enjoy and as always if you like the episode again um please share it or follow the page or um even message me be like hey the, another good one back and i'll be like thanks man i appreciate you okay maybe i won't say it in those words right to the episode see you at the end bye Hi everyone, welcome back to I've Never Had an Original Thought. This week I'm joined by Leo and Casey. Hi. How are um, you both doing? Really good, really good. I am I just finished a, a show and now I'm going to be auditioning for another one, so that's always fun. Yeah, um, pretty much the same. <laughs> I was decking for that show and now I'm uh, working on the production team for the other one <laughs> immediately after. So it's, like, it's just a lot of theater stuff, which is fun. That's super exciting. So I know you obviously through that, through that theater space, which is great. Um, and yeah, you two are obviously married, which is very exciting. <laughs> and we'll go into that. But the first question that I ask everyone in the podcast is, who or what is one person, idea or event or environment that you've been in that has changed the way that you see the world recently or just fundamentally in your life? Yeah, um, I think probably this mine is more like an event kind of. Um, when I graduated high school, I couldn't live at home for two weeks. I was kicked out. Uh, it was like the third time in high school that I was kicked out. Um, but this time, luckily I had someone to go with. I went to my girlfriend at the time's house for those two weeks. And my graduation day, uh, was the exact same day that my uni started. Cause I did summer semester. So it was like June 20th. I graduated June 20th. Some classes started. So I went from the graduation ceremony straight to the airport in my robes and everything, uh, frantically changing in the, in the like kind of like tearing off the robes and the security line and everything got to campus at like 1am needless to say I did not make classes on the first day um but the reason that it was such like a big event for me is because like I you know there was a reason I, I wasn't at home and I also didn't see my family at all when I graduated um because like I had a lot of homophobia in my family growing up and of course something had happened <laughs> near the end of that um and when I left I kind of just like cut all ties and it was weirdly one of the easiest things I had done and one of the best things I had done uh for myself at the time and the whole day was just kind of this like realization of like okay yeah um blood relatives but like I don't need them like so much (laughs) and like starting uni and like just living my life without like the constant like 
threat that they would often have over me was just like the most relieving and relaxing thing in the world. So ever since then, I've kind of just always had this mentality of like, if someone, no matter how they are related to you, like by blood, super close friendship, super close something, if it gets to a point where someone is more harmful to have in your life, then like not even helpful <laughs> like if it's just if they're becoming so harmful you can just cut ties you can just do it and it's it's it i don't know it's it's pretty sweet <laughs> um yeah I don't know, it's a bit of a downer to start on, I guess. No, it's, I feel like it's more of a journey of kind of um, resilience and sort of overcoming barriers to living the life that, you know, is authentic to you. Um, Leo, does this sort of story resonate with you as well? Um, yeah, I mean, I also had the experience of, um, of having kind of cut ties with uh, the family that I was born into. And... Um, like to various degrees, I think. Like I still have, I still have some contact and um, some places where uh, where we just don't communicate with each other about our lives. And I think, I think in a lot in a lot of cases, it can sometimes be better um, to have those kind of boundaries when there is a person in your life who is. Um, harming you on on sort of a consistent level i think sometimes it can be a form of self-protection and um at first i think it does seem really daunting and scary when someone's been such a big part of your life and when it feels like they're entitled to have access to you Mm. and then um and obviously my family has shaped so much of who i am as a person and like the things that I believed about myself and the things that I believed about my, about the world that I live in. And, um, once I didn't have that, it's then a process of figuring out, okay, like, what do I actually believe? Um, what am I actually gonna, um, gonna take from what I was taught growing up and what do I need to leave behind or replace? Mm-hmm. It's interesting, yeah, and I feel like we should give some context to the situation because the listeners won't know about the environments that you both grew up in, which is, Mm -hmm. you'd think it's unique, but I read that about, there's like 16 million Mormons in the world, Um, Mm -hmm. and you both went to Brimman Young University, right, which is the the Mormon university, Mm -hmm. and that's where you met, right? Yes, that is where we met. Yeah. Do you want to tell the story? Because it's actually so sweet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so yeah, I went to, uh, we both went to Brigham Young University. I started school first and I actually um, had been at that school for the past, you know, few years. And I was getting ready to graduate. Uh, For those who aren't aware, Brigham Young University is uh, the private university. university owned by the Mormon or uh, LDS church. And um, it has been ranked as among the most uh, homophobic universities in the United States. Its policies at the time that we went and still very much its policies, they've only gotten stricter or had slight word changes since we left, is that um, it is against what's called the honor code, which is a, um, a sort of code of conduct that students sign when they go to, to the university amongst a bunch of other things about not being able to, uh, leave the Mormon church while you go to the university, um, not being able to openly criticize the Mormon church while you go to the university, um, and not being able to drink or have, um, any person of the, uh, quote unquote opposite sex in your rooms, there is a, uh, a passage that basically says that any expression of homosexual feelings is against the honor code. And if that sounds vague, it's because it is. Uh, we would ask, uh, I was part of an unofficial group called USGA on campus that basically worked with providing support to students. So we were uh, LGBTQ students and allies at the university who um, would come together to provide mutual support. 
and um, to try and provide education to students on campus about the fact that um, queer Mormons actually exist, which is something that not every student knows and about um, kind of our thoughts and feelings and, and experiences. And we also would talk to the university about issues that were pertinent to students at the school who were in some way queer or trans or anything else like that. And so we'd ask consistently, we'd be like, okay, so what does expression of homosexual feelings actually mean? What, what things can we get in trouble for? What things can we not get in trouble for? What will the punishments be if we break it to whatever degree? And we would get tons of different answers. Some people would say, oh, it's just if you have, um, you know, sexual relations that are gay. For some people, it would be um, going on dates or saying that someone is your girlfriend or boyfriend or partner. Um, and for some, it would be things like, well, it's whatever makes you have gay feelings. So if having eye contact with a person of, of the same sex as you gives you gay feelings, you should avoid that because it's against the honor code. And um, what would also happen is that students were encouraged to report other students. Uh, and it, these reports could be based on the spirit told me that someone has done this. No, surely not. Um, we actually were reported yeah. multiple times because the spirit told different people that we were doing things that we were not doing at the time. The spirit being, um, them being nosy. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's exactly, I literally have had someone mm -hmm. go through my trash can once because they said the spirit led me there. Um, <laughs> and I was like, sure. The spirit's yeah. telling me to disrupt all your boundaries. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> It's well, and it's a very a lot of things within the Mormon church are very nebulous in the concept that, you know, you can have messages from God that will tell you things and that those things will appear as a feeling that you have and that you just are supposed to believe it is a thing that is somewhat common in Mormon culture. Not every Mormon believes in it the same way. But um, yeah, so that's the environment in which we were going to school. And it was my last year. Uh and I had come out and dealt with a lot of things as an out student because I'm both, um, I'm both a lesbian and a non-binary trans person. So uh, that was um, a big thing. And I was in my senior year and I was like, I'm gonna graduate. I just need to keep my head down and not like do anything, just get through school. And then I was put as the head of the women and gender minorities chapter of our sort of group. It was specifically to address kind of the homophobia slash transphobia misogyny combination that a lot of us have. And um, Casey was assigned to my uh, committee. <laughs> so we were having our first meeting to kind of get to know each other. Casey was uh, new to the group and like, um, and was really excited to get involved. So I had never actually met them. We almost met. We almost met multiple times. There were so many times the whole semester before where we were just like ships passing the night. Like we went to the same comedy show. We didn't know each other. So we didn't like see that we were sitting in different parts of the auditorium. We almost met at a farmer's market at a different USDA event, which would have also just been so the most lesbian thing. <laughs> um, and um yeah, I think there were just like a couple other events that one of us at the last minute decided not to go to or like did go to, but like different part of it. It's so weird. <laughs> yeah, but what finally ended up happening was we had set up an, uh, a, a meeting at this little like pod student area in the um, BYU library. And as I'm like walking up the stairs to the room where we're going to meet, I'm just like, yeah, like, this is going to be great. We're just going to have, like, a nice time doing this thing. I'm going to keep my head down. I'm going to graduate. I'm going to help the group before I go. And then I saw Casey just, like, chatting with our other member of the committee. And um, I was like, oh, I'm in trouble. Um, they were just so, like, just gorgeous amazing smile um like just super like energetic and bright and we were supposed to talk for a half hour 
and we talked for two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt so bad for the other committee member there because there were three of us total. And uh, it was just Leo and I kind of like near the end of it for the last like two hours. It was Leo and I going back and forth, just like, yeah, I really like people who are like this. And in my head, I'm like, oh, I'm like that. <laughs> just like chatting back and forth. I, I love the person that was there with us. They were the sweetest person ever. Um, like, um, and I thank them for their patience <laughs> in that meeting. Um, but yeah, it was, yeah, <laughs> we just couldn't stop talking to each other. Yeah, we really couldn't, you oh, know. I mean, it's such a, and obviously I've had the pleasure of meeting you both, but everyone to say you just light up a room with your relationship is such an, it's, you're so fucking cute, um, in the best way, but obviously, um, you had difficulty especially at the time I assume and maybe even now of obviously navigating your relationship in the world that we live in um unfortunately it's not always the best space for LGBTQ plus you know couples so how how did you overcome that how do you navigate that on a daily basis yeah I mean obviously there were differences in the kind of um issues that we have when we first were at BYU there were a lot of times where I was like, I just want us to be friends because I can't, I I don't want to have trouble and I don't want to like break the rules, but we would get reported anyway. Um, There was one point where we would literally, I, um, we agreed to trade homework help when we were still like just buddies, just gals being pals, um, though we were not gals nor strictly speaking pals at the time. And, um, we literally would sit in common areas and like be doing math, like books between us. And we ended up having to bring in um, your RA who shared a wall with Casey's bedroom to sort of testify that we were not having sex with each other um, because we were reported for doing so. And the report in the middle of the night, Casey's roommate, Casey got a text that said, I've been moved out and you've been reported. Yeah. Um, and they were like, they were like, you need to get back to your dorm now. And I thought, no, I'm mm-hmm. going to do the opposite of that. And instead I texted Leo. We got a motel. We just stayed off campus for a few days. Cause I just couldn't chance like running into any other code office people. Like it was, and I just thought it was also ridiculous. Like I didn't want to go home and be interrogated. So I was like, no, I'm not playing this game. I'm not going to do this. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, we just we just waited and, out in the motel for a while. And what happens within the Mormon church or within BYU a lot of times when these investigations are called for is you'll be expected to meet with your bishop. And in the Mormon church, bishops can only be men um, because only men are cisgender men are allowed to uh, hold what's called the priesthood, which is basically the right to act in God's name in the Mormon church. And so these men are usually significantly older and they have complete control. They can choose to withdraw your ecclesiastical endorsement, which is the thing that allows you to go to school at any time. Um, They can just go online and click a button and you're no longer enrolled. Uh, I actually had that happen to me once. I went into work and they were like, you don't work here anymore. You've been kicked out of school because a bishop of mine was upset that I had um, stopped texting him personal details about um, my gay thoughts. He demanded that on a weekly basis. And when I stopped, he uh, then pulled me from the school in retaliation. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you can imagine being you know, in your late teens, early 20s, and having to go to a man in his 50s to prove to him that you aren't having lesbian sex, um, with your entire university, your housing, your job on the line, um, the kind of power that that creates and the ways in which it can, and in the case of many students, especially uh, trans and, and or women students of the school, uh, the kind of exploitation that happens is pretty staggering. So that environment definitely was intense and so when I left it almost felt it almost feels like a culture shock of um because I I, I'll hear even people in the community in London who will talk about things that used to happen and I'm like and they're describing stuff that's still happening 
to students at, at BYU that happened to us a few years ago and acting as if it's distant history because it doesn't affect, you know, the the average kind of person with the most privilege, the sort of like big city kind of like upper class person. It's not considered as, as nice to be openly homophobic, so they assume that it doesn't exist. I think moving to London has been interesting in some ways. I, I don't necessarily think that homophobia and transphobia by any stretch are not here. We've definitely been harassed on the street. We've had um, an encounter on the bus once. Mm -hmm. That was was fun. Um, And, um, and obviously there's a lot of barriers. We'd both like to um, transition in various ways. And in the UK, there are a lot of barriers to that. But I think one of the things for us in navigating the world is um, that we are not just like an LGBTQ couple in general, but specifically a um, a lesbian couple and specifically a lesbian couple in which both of us are non-binary and um, we're both butch or like masculine presenting. And I think even sometimes in like lesbian or sapphic spaces that's something that people aren't used to if that makes sense because Mm -hmm. a lot of love stories that you see even of the very rare love stories that you actually see where there are you know like lesbian couples they're either both relatively feminine or occasionally you might see one masculine person with a more feminine person Mm -hmm. um and it's to the point, like, you've had some... Yeah, I have had some weird, like... Like, there's this weird assumption as well that, like, more mask of center lesbians have to be attracted to feminine lesbians. And when I show that I'm, that's, you know, not normally my preference, I will make the exception for the odd them. Um, <laughs> but, like, I love bushes. Um, but, like, I've had, like, issues like this one person in the club was, like she was femme she was very she was very confident um trying to dance with me really on me um and I was trying to make my way to the other side of the dance floor to a butch and um I remember because she went in for a kiss and I you know stopped her and I was like oh no thank you I'm okay and I looked over at the bush that I was literally at this point right behind me I had like managed to worm my way through and she just followed and I looked behind and she pointed um and said something like oh is that a man and i was like okay well that's just like one why do you care like that's just kind of rude and two i i don't care they are hot (laughs) um and uh i was like i guess i will find out but also you know um and i just thought that was like really rude and i just turned around that much and i instantly made a connection and um it was very clear to the stem and she was really, really upset with me, even though like I had made it very clear. I was trying to move away from her, trying to get to this other person, but she just seemed so annoyed that like, I wouldn't go for her. Someone with like long braided hair and really meticulous makeup and not necessarily saying those are strictly feminine things. Like we've got long haired butches and they're amazing. And I love them. <laughs> um, but like someone who was very clearly feminine, going for someone who was like more mask who then was also going for someone who was really masked and it just felt like a weird it felt really weird um and like i don't know that that's always stuck with me it's interesting um, how like it's almost still trying to fit this kind of like heteronormative norm of like having a masculine presence having a feminine presence you know am i yeah. misreading this that's just what it felt I'm, like to me that is like a thing that that does come up like people do point that out i i'm like there's nothing the butch femme couples are super cute i love them i love them to bits i just if someone you know likes if someone doesn't like you just you know get over it (laughs) like don't be mad at them for not being into you and especially if like a big part of your anger is their like gender presentation. That's just not really okay because like 
that gender presentation isn't up to you and no one is entitled. No, you're not entitled to anyone liking you because of your gender presentation. And butches deserve love, like so mm-hmm. much love. And I feel like they get like, like we get such a, like, like a, like a weird experience. I don't know. Yeah. I would say, I think it's, it's kind of complicated because on the one hand, I think there is, um, I don't necessarily know if it's heteronormativity or expecting there to always be a masculine or feminine person because I don't know that people blink as much of an eye if both people are feminine. Mm. Um, and I think... I feel like, sorry, I feel like that because it's kind of exists under the male gaze a bit, you know? Like, I feel like two feminine women, especially if they're attractive, they they benefit from that pretty privilege of like, oh, but they're beautiful, you know? I don't know. Yeah, I think, well, there's, there's definitely, there's pros and cons, right? Mm. Because if you are a traditionally feminine lesbian, you might, for example, um, have more, uh, you might not necessarily experience the the same discrimination that like a very gender non-conforming or visibly trans person might experience. Um, in the sense of like, if you are, if you look like a cisgender person, if you look very feminine, if you have that sort of traditional kind of what you may call it, there's, there's points though, where it can be like erasure, not having people recognize you for what you are, which is really hard. Mm -hmm. And, um, there's also a significant amount of fetishization, um, the expectation that men have, because I think there's sometimes, I think sometimes there can be a misconception that, when men are cheering when two girls kiss that that's somehow some kind of approval that they're getting when as someone who has experienced that it's really terrifying yeah because you have no idea when it's going to switch over to violence and it so often does um it's kind of the same thing as when you know a lot of uh people of various genders have men who will um come and like start harassing you or catcalling or those types of things where it's terrifying, but you're supposed to treat it as if it's a compliment. And I think what is butch and femme have traditionally been kind of lesbians own answer to sort of gender roles, if that makes sense. Not that we have strict gender roles because there are plenty of lesbians who are neither or um, who are masculine without necessarily being butch or feminine without necessarily being femme. It's all very like, yeah, there's yeah. so many different Culture. things you could be. But I think what is there for um, for butches is that sort of conflation with being sort of male or men, but without necessarily the same respect or the same um, association of worth that a lot of cisgender men have, if that makes sense. So where I think a lot of it comes with butches is is the notion that we are inherently undesirable and that maybe for some unfathomable reason, um, a feminine woman might be attracted to us because uh, uh, of some beauty and the beast, like overlooking of what we are. Um, But the idea that we would be, objects of attraction and particularly objects of attraction for each other is something that I think a lot of people can't necessarily wrap their heads around, even sometimes people who are in our same communities. And it's kind of complicated because on the one hand, we have our relationship with each other where we, when we're seen in public, obviously people can tell that we are like a a lesbian couple very quickly um, where they might not necessarily pick that up if there's two people who um, are not as obviously queer, who aren't necessarily holding hands or anything, they might not know. But even like a, a lot of people will be like, oh, do you experience homophobia when you're out with your wife? And I'm like, I experience homophobia when I'm walking down the street. Like, it's just not something that either of us have the chance to avoid or hide. And um, that can sometimes be challenging. And it can sometimes be challenging when I started to come into my sexuality, 
realizing that I was attracted to masculinity and thinking that that would be attraction to men because men were the only form of masculinity that I ever had representation for, um, especially in a romantic sense. Like you never see, um, you know, a butch lesbian as a romantic lead ever. And so realizing, cause I'm like, I'm not necessarily strictly into butches as much as Casey is, but like realizing kind of how can I be masculine and, and gender non-conforming and a lesbian and also be attracted to the same type of person? What does that kind of look like? And then having to deal with that in a world that can be really hostile to gender nonconformity, that can be really hostile to gayness, especially like lesbians. And it's, it, it's sometimes hard. I think a lot of it, it helps because I think anything that I could gain from not being with Casey, any type of approval that I could get would be so shallow and meaningless compared to the love that I experienced with Casey. Like, it's more than just that Casey is really hot and I'm extremely (laughs) lesbians with them. Um, I'm not lesbians with you too. We should get married. We should get married. (laughs) No, it's, I think it's that you're genuinely such a kind and generous person to to be with. Like you are so thoughtful and genuinely kind. And even when we disagree on things, like I grew up in 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 an environment where it was very much, uh, you know, shame and, and sometimes even full out abuse. And with Casey, I never have to be afraid to express when I'm feeling hurt or when I'm feeling um, insecure or uh, when I just want to do something or change something that I know that Casey isn't necessarily going to want to do. We can have conversations about that and like approach it as equals. Yeah, you're really good at like facilitating like actually talking about conflicts because in my family it's either like completely avoid the conflict or uh the conflict is me being screamed at um, (laughs) for three hours in a locked room so it's like I do not want to have those conversations at all but with Leo like Leo is calm and collected and like knows what they're talking about (laughs) and like I can feel like you and I like we just like are able to work through so many things together and I really appreciate that about you. Also, you're hot too. (laughs) How did you get to the point where you could have such open and honest communication and navigate safety in spaces that often provided you a sense of insecurity? Because as you were saying, Casey, um, often conflict wasn't a space that you ever wanted to be in. It only brought up bad feelings. Um, But how did you manage to get to a place where you can work through conflict in a healthy way? Um... Yeah, I think a lot of it was just, like, like, there's a lot of, like, physical things you can do that I think a lot of people don't realize happen in conflicts. Like, making sure that, like, if you are disagreeing or fighting or something, that you are on the same level. Um, Not just, like, your understanding, but even physically sometimes. If one person is standing over you and the other person is sitting, that can make you feel like if you're sitting they make you feel so inferior and on edge and defensive um and like so like just making sure that we're in a very neutral space as well like we're not gonna have an argument on the bus like that's you know mm-hmm. um we'll make sure we have it like at home we're both sitting down we're both facing each other like we stop and ask if one of us needs a hug at any point um, and I think the biggest thing that we, we do, space. or if we need space, yeah, mm-hmm. like one of us needs to go for a walk because it could just be that like you're just you just are really jazzed and you just really need to like go for a walk. Um, but like a, the biggest thing I think is making sure that we both understand each other. Like, because it's like, we, I don't even know, like, if I would use fight as the word, for, like when we disagree on something, we have to talk about it. It's more just like, like the biggest the main question that like we're both asking is like, okay, what is your side of this? Like, I want to understand what it is that you are trying to communicate to me and how you feel about the situation, because by understanding how you feel about it and what like you see from your side, I can like 
I, I can understand what it is we're talking about. Sometimes you get halfway through an argument with someone and you realize, oh, I've been, we're talking about two different things here. Hold up. Mm-hmm. Um, or we're even arguing the exact same point. We are just saying it in different <laughs> ways. Um, Cause like Leo here is, he, he's an absolute words wizard. <laughs> Leo is a writer. I am not a writer. <laughs> um, I draw pictures. I can't uh, make the words work. So I will like straight up be like, okay, I'm trying to format the sentence. So like it makes sense, but I'm having trouble with the words. So I'm gonna try and like give you the idea that maybe you can help me figure it out. And like Leo's really patient with that. And like sometimes Leo will say something to me and be like, okay, I'm gonna straight up admit I do not know what that what that word means. Um, or like, can you phrase that? Um, like I'm uh, <laughs> a one quote from from the office. Can you tell it to me like I'm five years old? Um, <laughs> No, uh, I'm, I'm not always like that. I know how to, uh, I know how to words. Um, but the basic thing is we work on actually understanding each other um, rather than like, I need to get my points through. It's like, no, you need to understand what the other person is saying. I think something that helps, because um, I, I don't know that I am always like great with conflict. I think Casey's giving me a little bit too much credit. Because I think I definitely have, I have a tendency for very black and white thinking. And I know this about myself, that I can sometimes be very all or nothing about things. I also can get, I don't think irrationally emotional, but I can sometimes exaggerate. You know, when I'm upset about something, it feels much bigger than when I look back on it, it actually was. And I know these tendencies in myself and I try and do my best to kind of take a step back am I actually being fair here? Am I actually like um, just keeping in mind that I can always be wrong? Um, But sometimes there are definitely times where I like react out of defensiveness or, um, or uh, feeling hurt and like it doesn't end up being productive. Um, I think a thing that I turn to a lot is um, one thing that I think has really helped with our relationship is the fact that um, we don't necessarily have prescribed roles with each other in the same way. Like we obviously have things that we naturally fall into or things that we do well, but there's not necessarily the idea that one or the other of us is in charge or, um, you know, guiding the family, which is something that I very much grew up with. And um, so as a result, we kind of need to deal with things together. And I think a big thing is that my primary goal in when we have conflict is have a relationship with you that is beneficial for both of us. So I think keeping the sort of end goal in mind of my goal is not to win. And my goal is not to like make this other person that I love feel bad. Um, my goal is to like come to an agreement on this thing. And I, yeah, I don't know. Cause I did grow up very much with a, with a very authoritarian kind of attitude about conflict where one person is right and one person is wrong. And I think that can sometimes creep into how I think about things, but I try to think about how it made me feel when I was the one who was being kind of shouted down and made small. And I don't want to do that to other people if I can avoid it. Definitely. Oh my gosh. Uh, so they, they sort of like the, um, some of the things that you internalized from your upbringing, is there still anything that you struggle with today where you're like, maybe even existentially, because, you know, you're kind of brought up in this environment where you know what your life's purpose is, you know, you know what's coming next, and then you leave that and you leave that religion. And existentially, you're like, okay, what now? (laughs) I had like a big like realization about that in uni. Like it was one of the BYU classes that kind of like, my it was my philosophy class, go figure. Uh, <laughs> philosophy 101, of course. Um, but it was that combined with meeting Leo because I grew up in what, like as what we call like a Jack Mormon. 
which is like a less orthodox Mormon. Like I would still drink caffeinated soda. I would drink Coca-Cola. You're wild. I know, wild. Um, I would I would go off campus to like buy cans of root beer, the not uncaffeinated diet root beer that they sold on campus, and like cherry coke. And I'd sneak them under my bed and I'd keep them there so that like the housing people wouldn't know. Um, so that's why you should have been called in, not me. <laughs> <laughs> She's a criminal. Um, but- yeah, exactly. Like I, I would, I had shopped on a Sunday every now and then when I just really needed something. Um, but like, and my mom was similar or is still like, I, I don't know, um, still kind of a, a Jack Mormon too. Uh, my stepdad is not. Um, and so, but Leo, um, so like when I was already looking at the church and being like, mm, this doesn't seem great. I was like early teens um, even as a kid, I just didn't like going, but I think that's just because I didn't like getting up early on a Sunday. Um, but like, um, I mean, no, no, like eight year old likes to sit there for like three hours and just listen to it. Like, three hours. Oh, it's yeah. There's cause there's, there's, I think it's two now. It's I think two they dropped now? one of the hours. But wow. I feel like one of those boomers that's like, I walked uphill both ways in the <laughs> snow. You should sit there for three hours. No, I'm yeah. happy that it's two hours. Good for all the poor kids that have to sit there for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, that's also if you don't have any meetings or like choir practice or anything afterwards. Mm-hmm. Anyway, anyway, I'm getting sidetracked. My, I already didn't super like the church because I don't like misogyny generally. And every time I knew thing about the church, I was like, that's not great. And that's kind of terrifying. Um, but I kind of figured part of it was like, oh, maybe because I didn't pay attention in Sunday school well enough. So I needed to do some more digging. I met Leo, who was raised in an extremely orthodox Mormon family. Call them Molly Mormons or Peter Priesthoods, because, <laughs> of course, they've got a weird name for that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know the gender neutral? I mean, I guess orthodox Mormon would be. There is no such thing as gender neutral in Mormon That's <laughs> true. It's not. Oh, God. Um, but, uh, so I met Leo who not only was raised super Orthodox, but was just wild, is still wildly intelligent and will like absorb every book they read just like, um, so being forced to read the book of Mormon doctrine and covenants and the Bible multiple times throughout their life, they knew everything they knew every scripture they knew that they knew all the extra documents too they knew about all the policies and how they changed and kept up with the news and everything and leo was like yeah none of this makes sense uh when you actually do the math like the history does not match up with world history the history does not match up within it with its own history within the books this doesn't match up they changed their policies randomly at this time they erased a bunch of art and replaced it with other stuff claiming that something had always been there in the artwork like, and I was just like, yeah, wow. First of all, this is, I'm glad that someone else who knows what they're talking about is like, yeah, this doesn't make sense. Cause I always felt like none of it actually made sense. But then like also sitting in, so I had the knowledge. I was like, okay, yeah, this is, this is not true. Like, I don't think this is true. I know this is not true. And then I had the extra bit of like, okay, like what happens when I die? <laughs> Um, that whole existential thought of like, what happens if I die? What happens if it's true? What happens if something else is true? And like, there was, I remember there was like this, I do not remember what it was. I don't know that I was actually good or had good grades in that philosophy <laughs> class. But I remember one lesson specifically was very much like, if you are wrong about whatever religion you believe in and you die, the chances are that like, something super bad will happen is not super high because like there's so many other religions you know um it's not necessary it's not like like you don't necessarily go like it'll be one where you personally will be damned for just not knowing about it like mormonism itself is has this weird trick in between all the head the three heavens and their version of hell and like dying where they like, I think there's technically two stages. There's like a diagram. But I think there's one where like you're asked if you like will deny the knowledge of the gospel when you fully know it. Um, and everyone, and it was stated that it's impossible to fully know that knowledge while you're alive. And it's like you had time in that in-between space to basically be like, oh, whoops, sorry. Um, 
and go to wherever. And I'm just like, okay, cool. So then what is the point of me doing all of this bullshit in life and making myself miserable? Like when, if, if somehow wildly the Mormons are right, if they are, um, then I'm still fine. Like it's, it's okay. Like, cool. Okay. Um, it really doesn't give me much of a leg up, but to be Mormon, um, and also like, then there's like also the thought of like, what if there's literally nothing? And I'm weirdly okay with that. Honestly, Mm. part of me prefers that if I'm alive, I'm going to enjoy it Mm. because yeah, I, I like the things that I get to feel and do when I'm alive. So I'm going to take advantage of that. I think your reconciliation with the fact that there may or may not be anything mm-hmm. is very liberating because it seems to me that a lot of people stay because they're just scared, you know? Yeah. It's like, it's based on, it per- perpetuates fear as a community. That's what I feel. Mm-hmm. Um, but Leah, I wanted to draw also upon this idea of misogyny and how yeah. much that's perpetuated because I think that's a really interesting dynamic of also how fear works in you know, in conjunction with misogyny in the Mormon mm-hmm. community. Do you want to touch on that? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it kind of goes hand in hand with sort of like internalized messages that we have. Um, from the time that I was born and like very young, um, I was raised to become a woman in the Mormon church. Um And from the moment that I was born in my family, and bear in mind that Mormonism is a a religion with a lot of different, uh, there are different versions of Mormonism and there are different levels of sort of orthodoxy within the Mormon church. So the amount to which this is believed by individual people can definitely vary. I don't want to give the impression that every Mormon is just thinking these exact things consciously every second of the day. Mm. Um, because there are a lot of reasons that people are in the church and there are a lot of beliefs that they have about this, but we do not speak of like any kind of divine female kind of existence. Everything is very much God and God is a man and man obviously means, you know, cisgender means heterosexual means all these other things. They all kind of are connected. And so from the time that I was very small, I was taught that the one role that I had in life was to become a wife and a mother that that was my entire role that was my entire existence and and that i was to do that for a priesthood holding man and as a result as i grew up so many of the messages that i had basically were that my choices had been made for me and it would even be things like i was told under what circumstances i was to say yes to a date and under what circumstances i was to say no under what circumstances i was to say yes to sex and what circumstances i was to say no and I, I didn't have a sense that I existed outside of that ideal. And um, it would even be things like as I was growing up, um, when I was about 11 or 12, it was always clear that I was not a, um, a, an ordinary kid. I had, I, I, from a very young age, I was different from other the other little girls that I grew up around and the other little girls in my family. So I was treated differently than them. When I was about 11 or 12, my mother uh, started teaching me how I was to walk or how I was to sit, how I was to speak so that it, I could be attractive. And the goal was always making myself attractive enough for men, never evaluating what I wanted. And so I think that really shaped a lot of how I thought about myself and how I thought about my sexuality because I really almost saw myself as a damaged product where I had just come off the factory line wrong and I was therefore less valuable and might have to settle for not for someone who wasn't Mormon because that was not possible but someone who wouldn't necessarily treat me as well or wouldn't you know, respect as much as they would a woman who is better at performing what Mormon femininity was supposed to be. And it would even be things like one of the beliefs that we had in Mormonism that I was kind of raised with was the idea that when I, that if I was good and I did all the things that I would eventually 
become like God and that we would like have sort of our own children and our own sort of planet to kind of rule over. And I would get so excited about that because I loved world building and I loved like things like that. And I would, and I showed my mother these like blueprints I had where I was like, here's how I'm going to make people better. And here's how I'm going to like fix the ocean so that the water is drinkable. Like I was looking up and I was like, Oh, but then you would have to get rid of the salinity and how would I do that? (laughs) And my mother looked at me and she went, I think that'll be your husband's job. You will probably be in charge of like making the flowers. And I was like, I don't want to make the flowers. I don't really care. But it was just so the notion that like I had sort of any utility beyond sort of traditional femininity didn't really exist. And because of that, I think within Mormonism, there are a thousand ways in which you're taught from a very young age. If you want any kind of um, church blessing or anything, you have to go through a man. If you, um, want to go to heaven you need your husband to call you there you don't get there by yourself um if you uh men are able to be sealed or uh eternally married to multiple women but women can only be sealed to one man and especially for me as someone who's non-binary and like didn't really functionally understand or relate to the concept of myself as as a woman like I understood intellectually that that was what I what I was what I was assigned and in some ways I still definitely feel a sort of solidarity and like political like likeness with women but it was just this intense prolonged sort of wrongness not on the level of this is just not a way that you should treat any human being And also in a way of like, this fundamentally isn't who I am. And so I think either one of those and both of those together are really difficult things for anyone who is either born into the church and kind of assigned the role of woman or realizes that they are a woman or not a man well within the church. It's it's one of those things where I still, I remember when I was, my mother had a lot of theories about why I was gay. And um, a lot of those were based on this notion of gender. The idea, one of one of her primary theories was that because I'm autistic, I wasn't um, attractive enough to get a man. So I had to settle for women. And that if I had just fixed my autism when I was young, you know, cured that, then I would be a beauty queen because I would have been cured. And um, one of the things that she told me when I was coming out is because I initially had come out still presenting fairly feminine as much as I could. I was never very good at it, but like I would, you know, wear dresses and things. And as I, as I started coming out, my mom went, just remember that one day you're going to be a butch lesbian because that's the worst thing Satan can create for a woman. And so when you are, remember that I told you this would happen and that I was right. And God told me that this was true. And so when I finally realized I was a butch lesbian, you can imagine that was kind of like a mind twist for me being like, wait a minute, did God tell my mom this was going to happen? Is this like, and so, yeah, I think growing up with this mentality that the very worst possible thing you could be is of no use to a man sexually. It's difficult to then create your own value. Yeah, definitely. Um <laughs> On a completely different level, I relate to that feeling that you're only worth so far as you're attractive in the eyes of a man. And that's that's mm-hmm. something that I think, you know, is quite universal among women. Um, and it's harmful yeah. for everyone. It's harmful exactly. whether you're straight, cis, trans, lesbian, bisexual. Like it doesn't, the whole idea that your only utility is in your ability to provide a service to someone else mm. can really mess up your whole relationship with yourself yeah i completely agree um Mm -hmm. wow we've talked about so much um and i know that you're busy people so my final question is just about how did you manage to overcome all of those barriers or you know the the religious trauma um and also almost break a cycle of generational trauma i would argue Mm -hmm. um what would you say to people that might potentially be you know resonating with your story I don't think there is a getting over the trauma personally. And I think that's okay. 
if you because trauma is a big thing and it affects so much of your life and I feel like there's almost an expectation to move forward from it or not like or like get over it in some way or overcome it or overcome barriers but like it's always going to be with you the key is just like living with it Mm -hmm. um and like I'm never going to wake up with a different past than the one I have Mm -hmm. and like it's terrible that that happened it's I wish I could go back and change so many things and demand like a life that like should be available to everyone but it's a big part of who I am and I it shaped a lot of my experiences so it's not and it's not going to go away anywhere but it's not going to dictate how I want to live I think is the main thing like just realizing that what I want is still what I want and I can still try to have that and like just looking at where I am now versus where I was six years ago it's such a huge leap and it's such a cliche thing to say but it gets better (laughs) like you can just leave you can like, I mean, obviously there are barriers to people leaving. That's, there's lots of difficult things. Like, um, you know, when I was in high school, it's very difficult to leave your family. As a Mormon, it's very difficult to leave. Sometimes you need to get a lawyer to have your records removed. And sometimes you lose a huge community all at once. And it's a really big deal. But I promise there is the rest of the world out there for you and you can find things that you like maybe there were some nice things that you liked about more Mormonism like the sense of community you can make your own community have that for yourself yeah I was gonna say I think for me a big thing I don't know that I necessarily have overcome everything I think there are definitely things that I feel proud of having broken away from at least on some level I think some of the things that helped me a lot were people who were kind. I had one person in my life when I was kind of moving away from being LDS because at the time that I left the church and I'm, I'm, I'm talking about some pretty, some pretty serious things here. So I, I, I do want to have that warning, but at the time that I left the church, I a hundred percent believed it was true. I believed that the religion was true with every fiber of my being and the reason that I left was not because I didn't think that it was real or because it was easy for me. It was because I realized if I don't leave today, I'm going to die tomorrow. I I just, I, I couldn't continue to exist. And I was like, I have to give this up on some level. And I think before that, I had had some really great um, people in my life because there was definitely a time where I was like, if I die believing in this, if I if I end up killing myself, then that would be okay because I'll have done it for God and it would be all right. And um, I had several like kind professors and, and people who kind of did, kind of were there for me. But I remember one in particular was... His name was uh, Ben Hopkin, and he was a acting teacher that I had. And he taught me how to act, and now I think I act pretty well, which is nice. But he I can also, confirm you do. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. But he also, um, he was someone who just genuinely cared about people and about connections and about things. And he, he and I became kind of, friends and he kind of like mentored me a lot after I after I had taken his class and um because I had taken it outside of school he we were just doing um so it wasn't like a professor kind of deal but he also one of the things that he would do is he would just gently challenge me on things that I would say about myself or about my worth as a person and he would just be like I just want to kind of gently challenge you on that he among some other really great people in my life kind of brought me to the realization that maybe it was okay if I lived, even if I didn't have the utility or value that I thought that I should. And it was okay if I just stopped. And once I left the church, I obviously had like this sort of realization of a lot of this isn't making sense on a logical level. Like 
there were th- there was resources because we're not really allowed to read resources outside the church about the church. Mm-hmm. But there were a lot of resources where I was like, oh, there's evidence here that's like conclusive for me. It's it's one of those things where it's like we wouldn't have to be so brave, you know, existing if the rest of the world didn't make our existence so scary. But I think I, I don't think that anything that I've been through within the church has inherently had value. I don't think it was for a reason beyond that some people chose to do some bad things Mm. to us. And um, there are reasons that they chose to do those things. There's historical stuff, there's emotional stuff. But at its core, I think what I've come out of this with is the notion that suffering is not inherently valuable and it's not some inevitable good. It's a thing that happens Sometimes because we just don't have a choice. We live in a world where sometimes that just happens, but sometimes because we are being selfish or short-sighted. And I think having that kind of ability to look at things and go, okay, if this shouldn't be happening and there's no good reason for it, then we can stop it without feeling too guilty or feeling like we're losing some great aspect of character building So while I don't necessarily think I've overcome everything exactly, I think that I have a drive to make the world better for myself and for other people. And I think that can be helpful because it doesn't necessarily make what's happened to me okay, but it does, it does add a lot to realize that what happened wasn't part of some great plan that I have to trust in and that it wasn't supposed to happen. Like, I think that's a big thing is realizing that the religious trauma wasn't God's plan. It wasn't anyone's plan. It wasn't supposed to happen. And once you're able to kind of accept that, you're able to start realizing that you didn't deserve it. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I think, and I think if you don't deserve to be treated that way, that automatically, I think, leads you to, okay, well, what do I deserve? And um, I think overall, what we all deserve, the people that are still stuck in the church, the people who are, you know, living with these kind of systems in the real world, what we deserve is just better. Oh, you're both incredible. Um, (laughs) I don't think I can follow that up with a statement because you're you're both absolutely right. is there anything that you'd like to promote or direct anyone to people that are listening, anything you'd like them to support that you can plug? Much do about nothing is coming up <laughs> at network theater, um, which of course, you know about, um, we're taking Shakespeare and we're making it a lot gayer. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> who doesn't love gay Shakespeare? It's, it's, who doesn't love it's what he intended. I'm sure of it. <laughs> I've hidden like four like pride flags in the poster. Uh, one of them is very obvious, but like the other three are a little more subtle. But um, we've got like the main thing is Benedict and Beatrice are going to be a lesbian couple and also open to non-binary roles as well. We have multiple versions of the script with different pronouns, just depending on who we cast and what pronouns mm-hmm. they'd like to play the character as with. Um, so, and then the rest of it is gender blind casting too. So it's going to be so cool and very fun. And we, yeah, yeah I know, it's so a lot fun. of what we just talked about. Um, actually representing, you know, lesbians and non-binary people and queer people as worthy of love and um, worthy of happy endings. And I think, so I'm, Casey's going to be producing. I'm going to be auditioning and I hope that I will be a part of the cast. But if not, I will probably be in the audience on most nights so um come hang out yeah come see us. if you are in the london area in when is the dates the dates of the show are uh may the like third week of may i believe mm-hmm. 18th through 21st of may if somehow this gets heard by people before then auditions are monday the 14th and wednesday the 16th mm-hmm. of march 7 p.m network theater at waterloo station go down a creepy tunnel and come audition for a shakespeare play yeah it's very exciting you don't have to book you can book online but, <laughs> um when and um if you just look up network theater in waterloo then you will find the website or instagram or facebook um we're pretty easy to find but yeah come hang out with us come say hi 
and uh, watch some queer Shakespeare. Watch some gays be happy uh, and make jokes about about (laughs) things too. Hello, it's me again. Thank you so much to making it to the end of the episode. And thank you to Leo and Casey for being incredible and spending their time with me. Obviously, I'm no better at wrapping up episodes than I was before, but it's only the second try. So you'll have to give me the benefit of the doubt. But any advice you can give on how I can improve it, I would love to hear it. So please drop me a message um, and then I will find ways to get better. That is the hope. Anyway, I hope you have a great week or whatever you're doing right now. I hope it goes well for you. I'm sending you all my love in case you need it. And even if you don't need it, have my love. I'm reading Bell Hooks at the moment, so it's all about love, literally. Um, If you get that reference, then also message me about that because I have stuff to say about that book. Anyway, I'm digressing and I will see you next week. Okay, bye.